Hi, I'm Dennis Levick. This is my lovely wife, Tracy. Hi, I'm John Rudnick. We're Barry and Anita Chenault. My name's Edward Devlin. My name is Rosalie Devlin. Hi, we are Brent and Sheila Howell. My name is Matt Leesman. Hi, my name is Hannah Rollins. My name is Chad Peterson. Before I knew Christ, even though I had like a lot of friends and a really good community, I was still kind of alone. I was definitely trying to find my like self-worth and everything and what other people thought about me instead of finding my worth from God. I found God on TikTok. I was just scrolling through and it was a bunch of videos about Jesus and then I started to look into it. I watched some YouTube videos on it and then bought a Bible. And the TikTok videos that I would watch, they really just went over how much God loves us. The fact that God loves us that much to send His Son to die for us, really just, I was like, I have to be a part of that. I didn't grow up in a Christian home or anything. So yeah, it is hard in my own faith walking when I don't have my parents by my side in it. My best friend, she invited me to church. We had met a couple years ago. We started playing volleyball together. And then one day we were at a tournament and we both saw each other reading our Bibles. And then we started our own Bible study. Our Bible studies, they would be at either a Starbucks or Panera or sometimes just in our own living rooms. One thing that I would want other people to know is to just pray about everything. There's nothing too small that you think that you can't bring up to God because that's not true. You should bring up every little thing that you're going through, every big thing that you're going through because He really does want to hear it. God can use TikTok, man. Um, yeah, if you didn't think that's funny, it's because you don't know what TikTok is, which is totally fine. Hey, grab a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 will be in verses 12 and 13 today as we close out our four-week series on the Lord's Prayer. And as you're turning there, just one last announcement for us. Mark your calendars. Pastor Sean talked about it last week. But on October 23rd at 4 p.m., we'll have Trunk or Treat back here at Coastal Yorktown. See the slide right there? You can sign up to decorate a trunk, to donate candy at gocoastal.org slash events. Um, as a family pastor, my family ministry team is worked so, so hard on this event. It's going to be a ton of fun. Um, I know my family specifically is excited about it. My four-year-old has been debating uh, which princess to dress up as for the last two months. And so I hope that you guys are excited about this event as Piper Curtis. Um, yeah, 23rd, come out and fellowship and have a great time. It'll be a beautiful, beautiful day. Um, so Matthew 6, verses 12 through 13. Like I said, last week of our series, on the Lord's Prayer. And up until this point in our series, we've had three weeks and we've taken it one verse at a time. This morning, I have two verses. So it only figures that I should be given twice the amount of time, right? I think so. No, if you're not laughing again, you're like, please let him not be serious. <laughs> I'm not serious. I'm kidding. I'm gonna keep our time actually really straightforward and really simple. So much so that I wanna offer us my main point, my thesis, the main idea for our time, right off the top at the beginning. You have it at the top of your bulletin in your notes. This will drive our time in the Word today. The grace that redeems us from the penalty of sin is the same grace that frees us from the power of sin. Grace that redeems us from the penalty of sin is the same grace that frees us from 
the power of sin. Look, we know after studying it now for three weeks that the order of the Lord's prayer is intentional. Jesus is laying out a roadmap for us, providing us with a model. And in Matthew 6, verses 12 and 13, the model for us today is meant to be both theologically helpful to teach us something about God and practically helpful to give us something to change the way we live. And we'll see that Jesus connects the grace that pardons in verse 12 with the grace that empowers in verse 13. And we'll see why it's so important. And so our plan this morning, really simple, two verses. And as you'll see in your notes, I'm going to give us two points each followed up by a practical word that'll provide us with something to wrestle with, to to challenge us as we head out of here today and start our week. So Matthew 6, verse 12, let's get to work. This is the word of the Lord. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So the word debt here in the original language is simply the word for sin. Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer says transgression. And so when we read forgive us our debts, we're not talking financial debts here. Jesus is speaking spiritually. And this makes sense. This request is at the heart of Christianity. It experiences and communicates to us that we need forgiveness. That God ultimately is the one who grants forgiveness. And trust, we know this church, but sin is our greatest problem and forgiveness is our greatest need. And so this is a request with an underlying understanding that before God, a holy God, we can't work for our forgiveness. We can't earn our forgiveness. Similar to our time in the word last week with the request for daily bread, this verse gives us a picture of almost a small child coming before a father in total dependence It's like we're communicating to God here. If you don't forgive, then we are not forgiven. And we need forgiveness more than anything else. Whether or not we've been forgiven of our sin impacts every aspect of our lives. It impacts how we live with our families, how we work at our jobs, how we interact with our church family. It obviously impacts our standing before God. It even impacts our evangelism how we share the gospel, recognizing that forgiveness of sin is the greatest human need directly impacts how we share the gospel. And over the next four weeks as a church family, we'll be walking through a four-part series on evangelism. And I want to lay this foundation for us right now. We have to understand that ultimately at its core, the gospel is not about peace or purpose or fulfillment or joy or hope or any of those good things that God does provide us with. I've been on enough street evangelism trips with young people and even seasoned believers that start something like this. We'll, we'll go up to a person who we're trying to share the gospel with and we'll ask a question like, hey, would you say that your life is characterized by peace? Would you say that you have purpose or fulfillment in your life? Do you think that you have hope? And it's a good question. It's a well-meaning question, but What happens when the person we're trying to share Christ with says, well, yeah, I think so. I have nowhere to go. And and here's the thing. Most people would say, even without realizing it, that they think they have some kind of peace. They think they have some kind of purpose or hope. And and again, like this is not wrong. The intention here is well-meaning. God provides us a peace that surpasses all understanding. There's no peace like the peace that Jesus gives his people He provides us with a purpose that the world can't touch, a soul satisfaction that the world can't compete with. But at the core, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is not about those things. It's about forgiveness and reconciliation. The gospel meets our deepest need. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that God through Christ has reconciled us to himself. 
Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a reconciliation that occurs when someone trusts in Jesus for salvation. They go from being rebels and enemies in the sight of a holy God to adopted as sons and daughters of a king. And I want us to see this request here at the beginning of our time in verse 12, because it's the miracle of justification, which is the the fancy theological word for God declaring us righteous in Christ. God atoning for our sin and covering us with the righteousness of Christ. Because we have been justified, church, we now have peace with God, as Romans 5 tells us. We're saved for eternal life and we're saved from eternal death. And we need to see what a significantly huge deal this is. This miracle of justification, the thing that meets our deepest need, the moment where God covers us. But the thing is, is this gets old for us. Like if you've been in church for a while, like you've heard week in and week out that God has paid the penalty for our sin through Jesus. You know that we've been justified and you can define justification. You're comfortable with this. And we talk about it every week and we should. Like Christians, we should rehearse the gospel in our hearts every week. That's one of the points of corporate worship. It's a rehearsal for heaven. But the problem is we're still bored by it sometimes. We get used to this idea that God has covered us. And I think think this is because we don't see our sin how God sees our sin. What we do is, I've been there in my own life, is we trivialize and we minimize our sin. When a preacher gets up and starts talking about the weight and the seriousness of sin and how one sin, just one, is enough to warrant us eternal punishment, eternal separation from God, it's easy for us to think, okay, my sin's really not that bad, right? Like, I'm not like that guy down the street. I haven't done anything crazy awful. Is one sin really enough to condemn me to hell, a literal place that Christians talk about forever. And I think we think this way for two primary reasons. One, we underestimate the holiness of God. We underestimate the holiness of God. And I say this logically, right? Like it's impossible for us to overestimate God's holiness. God is great and mighty. He's not a better version of us. He is the ultimate perfection, moral purity, beauty, and righteousness. There's no one like God. He's holy and totally set apart. He is the essence of perfection. And we miss that when we trivialize our sin. But the second reason we don't see our sin as serious and therefore we don't see justification as that big of a deal is because we fail to see that the punishment for our sin depends not on the severity of the sin, but on the one sinned against, on the status of the one sinned against. Let me put it this way. Who here has a sibling? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. If you have a sibling, okay. Most of us in this room have a sibling. Imagine if you took your right hand like this and you slapped your sibling across the face. Like you just have one hand and you move it like 12 inches and it collides with their cheek. Something we've probably all done many times if we have siblings. What would the punishment or worldly consequences be if you slapped your sibling? Honestly, probably not a ton. Like if you're a kid here listening, then maybe you get maybe you get punished. Maybe you can't watch Jesus videos on TikTok. Like we, ultimately though, you're not going to suffer a ton because it's your sibling, and they might hit you back, and and you're going to move on with your life. The consequences for one slap on a brother or sister are not too significant. Let's take it up a level though. Imagine if you, with your right hand, you slap your boss. And people are like, "Amen." <laughs> like, no, you slap your boss. 
what are the worldly consequences? You're getting fired, right? If I slapped my boss, I say this with fear and trembling, I would instantly disqualify myself from pastoral ministry. You never see me here again. And it makes sense, rightly so. You can't slap your boss. There are worldly consequences, even though the action of the slap, man, is the same. It's just moving your hand 12 inches and colliding with someone's face. Let's take it up one more. Imagine if you slapped a police officer, you'd be arrested. And again, rightly so, like you might spend the night in jail. You can't assault a police officer, but the slap is the same as slapping your brother. I mean, one more level. Imagine if you slap the president of the United States. Like if I, Colin Curtis, slapped the president of the United States, you would never hear from me again. <laughs> like I would go from living in Newport News, Virginia to like spending the rest of my days in some basement in the Pentagon. Like I would be effectively gone. My life would be over. And Rightly so. Like the president's more important than my little brother, Will, who I love very much. But, but get the point. The action is the same, but the punishment is different based upon the status, the importance, the authority of the one sinned against. Listen, church, how much more severe should the punishment be when we sin against a holy and perfect God? Like he is more powerful than we can ever imagine greater than we can comprehend. And so one sin, one little sin is enough to warrant for us, not a night in jail or a life in the Pentagon. It's enough to warrant for us eternal punishment in a real place called hell. When we see this, the miracle that is justification falls on our hearts in a fresh way. What Christ has done for us on the cross lands on us in a sweeter way. We are a forgiven people because of Christ and his work on the cross. Psalm 103 verse 12 now applies to us. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And so we pray then the words of the Lord's prayer, forgive us our sins. It's what we need the most. I'm gonna pause here. If you're here for the first time and you don't yet know Jesus, it's what you need the most. Like we're gonna talk about growing in holiness here in a minute, but this is what applies to your life right now. What you need the most is not peace or purpose or a new hope, though God does provide those things. What you need more than anything is to be forgiven of your sin and reconciled into a right relationship with your creator. And we trust that the gospel offers us a way to do that. We say the word gospel. What do I mean? The Bible teaches that there is a loving and a holy God, the God we've been talking about and singing to this morning, who's created us to be in a relationship with him. But all of us have sinned, whether it's little sins here and there or like gigantic sins that you're ashamed of. We've all sinned and separated ourselves from that God. But God, because he is loving and merciful and gracious, hasn't left us in that sin. He's sent his son, in the person of Jesus, fully God and fully man, to live a perfect life, die a sacrificial death on a cross, and then bodily be raised back to life. And if we trust in that, we repent, turn back from our sins, trust in the person and work of Jesus and receive him into our lives, then we have that deepest need met. We are forgiven and reconciled into a relationship with our creator. It's point number one, God offers forgiveness. He offers it to us freely. And that's the first part of this verse. God, without coercion or need, freely offering forgiveness of sin, inviting us in to ask for it. But there's a part for us to play here too. Look at the second half of verse 12. As we also have forgiven our debtors. Letter A, God requires forgiveness. 
So number one, God offers us forgiveness through the miracle of justification. Letter A, God requires forgiveness from his people. And not requires as a necessary for salvation. Again, justification is a gift. But there's a clear expectation in this text that just as God has freely offered us forgiveness, he then requires us to freely offer others forgiveness in return. To the point where Jesus says, forgive us as we have forgiven others. And so here's where I'm going to go from preaching to meddling a little bit. If we as Christians are holding out forgiveness towards others, especially towards others in the church, then it displays a lack of a true understanding of the forgiveness that we ourselves have been given. N.T. Wright put it this way. I want to read a quote at length. So good. Failure to forgive one another wasn't a matter of failing to live up to a new bit of moral teaching. It was cutting off the branch you're sitting on. The only reason for being kingdom people or for being Jesus's people was that the forgiveness of sins was happening so that if you didn't live forgiveness, you were denying the very basis of your new existence. In other words, claiming forgiveness ourselves only makes sense, church, if we're willing to offer that same forgiveness to others. And again, there's room for wisdom and, and nuance here to be sure. In a room or gathering this size, I know there are situations of violence and situations of abuse. The Bible does not command us to seek out face-to-face -face encounters. Be wise. We don't put ourselves in danger here. And forgiveness doesn't always mean that there's a total restoration of trust. It doesn't mean that the relationship is restored back to where it was before the offense was committed. But hear me, it does mean that you make a conscious and committed decision to clear the debt, to forgive once and for all the one who sinned against you. And we're human, right? It's not a perfect process. Feelings of bitterness and animosity might creep up at other times, but whenever it does, you remember in your mind, nope, I forgave them. The debt has been cleared. It's been paid for. And listen, I know for some of us, this sounds unrealistic. It's easy to think like, Colin, you don't know what happened to me. Get this, the only way we can do this, the only way we can offer forgiveness towards others is because Christ has first offered it to us. And listen, church, Christ has forgiven much in us. He's forgiven much in us. And it becomes so much easier to forgive others when we first see the depravity of our own sin. Like we need grace, not weekly or monthly. We need forgiveness and grace every single day. Like every single morning. This could get awkward for a minute, but imagine if up on my left and right on the screens, imagine if every thought that you had this morning started scrolling across the screen. Like every thought, just up there for like 400 people to see. Like all the grumbly thoughts that you have on a Sunday morning. Like, man, the kids are really stirring up this morning. The didn't get my favorite parking spot. The coffee's not as strong as it usually is. Man, the family pastor's up here preaching. Like we got stuff that bothers us, right? We grumble. And that's just, that's little trivial stuff. Like imagine the, the real sinful thoughts that we have on a daily basis, even as redeemed people. Man, I'm working on this in my own life. I wish my thought life was perfect. It's not. I know this is the same for us. But listen, if we're in Christ, we have all these sinful thoughts scrolling on the screen. If we're in Christ, there's a red stamp that Jesus has put there that says forgiven. 
This is clean, pure, faultless, and righteous. Listen, church, when we trust in Christ, Jesus covers us with his righteousness so that God doesn't look at our sinful thoughts and hold us accountable for them. He looks at our thoughts, our actions, our behaviors, and sees the purity and the righteousness of Jesus. That's what he's given us. And when we understand that, man, it becomes so much easier to offer forgiveness towards others. When we see the depravity of our own hearts rightly. So what work needs to be done in your life this week? What work needs to be done in my life? If God forgave you based off of how much forgiveness you showed others, where would you be? Colossians chapter three, verse 13, Paul writes this, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Listen, Christian, if you're here and this is you, man, then think you don't need to wait to be called to forgive. You don't need to wait to feel ready to forgive. God is commanding you to forgive. And so now you know there's either obedience or disobedience that follows. And we'll talk about action steps at the close of our time, but I'm praying even right now that God would lead to reconciled relationships as a result of our time this week. And so that's verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. But here's the thing, and this is where I want to push us a little bit as we transition into verse 13. Gratitude for the forgiveness of sin is an insufficient motive in the fight against sin. Gratitude towards justification, like again, we've been justified, it's a miracle, but gratitude and feelings of thankfulness for that justification aren't meant to carry us throughout the Christian life. Those feelings, the gratitude thoughts, that kind of thinking, it's not meant to help us wage war against sin. Imagine it this way. Imagine you were on death row and you've been on death row now for years or months and the date of your scheduled execution is tomorrow morning. It's difficult for us to put ourselves in that headspace, but try with me for a second. And you know that today you're going to eat your last meal. You'll have your last night's sleep. You'll take your last shower. Like everything is the last thing you'll do because you know tomorrow morning you have an appointment with the executioner. And you go to sleep and you try to sleep, but you can't sleep, obviously, because there's emotional turmoil in your heart. You know that when morning comes, you're going to die. It'll be your last moment on earth. And you know that in the morning when the warden and the guards walk in your cell, they're going to take you away to be executed. And so the sun rises and the doors of your cell open. The warden comes in, followed by the guards, and he says, hey, this never happens, but someone just took your place in the execution chamber. Someone volunteered to die in your place. And now because someone else has paid the penalty of your crime, you're not just facing a life sentence anymore. You're free to go. Like the doors of the prison are opened and what do you do? You run out. It's the happiest moment, the happiest day of your life because you're no longer condemned. You are forgiven and free. Like you go out rejoicing. Like the breath that you take in the fresh air is like revitalization to your lungs. Every bite of food you eat that day is like the tastiest bite you've ever eaten because you're still alive. You're not gonna die. You have life. And the day after is just as sweet. And so is the day after. And the first week is this incredible experience where you have new life. But what happens as week after week after week passes and the week turns into months 
and the months turn into years. Listen, you're always going to be grateful, incredibly grateful for that one who died in your place. But as you grow, and as the years go by, and as the decades go by, what happens to the feelings of thankfulness? They're always going to be there. You're always going to be grateful for what happened, but especially as you approach a more natural death, you know, they're not as vibrant as they once were when you were given that new life. It's because those feelings aren't meant to sustain you. The same principle applies to the Christian life. Like I remember being a 17-year-old kid in Northern Virginia and having my life collided with the person and work of Jesus. January 11, 2012, when God saved me. I remember that day like it was yesterday. And I remember the feelings like, I was on cloud nine, man. Like God had saved me. His grace had radically changed my life. And that was 10 years ago. And in the weeks following when I was a brand new baby believer, it's like, I just couldn't wake up, couldn't wait to wake up in the morning and praise God. What's happened 10 years later? Like by God's grace, I still have feelings of gratitude. And as Christians, we always will, but they come and go. Some days they're really, really strong. And some days they're not even there. Like I can openly admit as a pastor, I don't wake up every morning with fresh zeal for the Lord. I wish I did, but I don't because my relationship with Christ isn't ultimately based upon my feelings. See, this I think is a problem with the American church. We are so comfortable with that freedom moment, that prison door moment where we are freed and justified and forgiven. We praise God for justification. We're really comfortable with this doctrine, the grace that forgives. But the problem is, church, is we tend to stop there. We tend to stop at the act, the miracle of justification. We're offering an incomplete gospel. And the problem comes when the feelings fade. Then you're like, man, what's wrong with me? I don't feel thankful to the Lord today for saving me. And we preach the gospel to ourselves every day as we should, but our gospel sounds a lot like you are forgiven, you are chosen, you are loved, and you're free. And don't get me wrong, all of those things are so true. Like we're in Christ, we are forgiven, we are chosen, we are loved, we're accepted because of the grace of God, we are free, but we stop there. We are super familiar as an American church with the gospel that justifies, that declares us righteous, but what we need more than ever as a church family is a reminder that the gospel that saves us is also saving us. That the gospel that justifies us is also the gospel that sanctifies us, that makes us holy. Sanctification, another theological word, simply means the process of becoming more and more like Jesus, as it talks about in Romans chapter eight. Listen, we don't outgrow the gospel, move past the gospel. We move deeper into the gospel and stopping at justification would be like opening the doors of the prison and then saying, okay, you're free, good luck. Now go and live your life. Listen, in the words of the Lord's prayer, and all throughout the Bible, Jesus is offering us a better way, a more sustainable, healthier way. And it goes back to our main point this morning. We don't have to rely on feelings of gratitude to carry us through the Christian life, as sweet as those feelings are. No, the grace that redeems us from the penalty of sin is the same grace that frees us from the power of sin. And the gospel is not only sufficient to pardon our sins, it's also enough to empower us to wage war against our sins, to protect us from those sins. And so look at verse 13 of the Lord's Prayer, and you'll see the connection here. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's a request, an ask. And the dependence, again, that we've been seeing, we depend on God for provision, daily bread. 
We depend on God for forgiveness, justification, and now we are depending on God for sanctification, for protection against sin. And Jesus is offering us this model of prayer that recognizes that just as we need the mercy of God for salvation, we also need the mercy of God to fully live the Christian life in a God-glorifying, sin-conquering kind of way. After all, did Jesus die just so that we could be forgiven? Is that why he died? No. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Listen, Jesus took on our sin on the tree, not only so that we would be forgiven of it, but so that we would die to it so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. In church, this is the prayer in verse 13. God, make us holy. Deliver us from evil. You've given us mercy and grace in forgiving us. Now give us that same mercy, that same grace in empowering us. This is number two in your notes. God empowers our fight against sin. God empowers our fight against sin. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus was laying out his plan for the disciples, communicating to them what he was about to do. And he understood, and the Gospel of John makes it really, really clear, that, that he knew that the memory of him and the feelings of thankfulness for the work that he was about to undertake wouldn't be sufficient to build up the new church. He knew that they would be thankful that he would rise back to life. He knew that they would have this visceral memory of who he was, but he knew that the memory and the feelings alone wouldn't build up the church. What proof of this? Look at the gospel or the, the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we see after Jesus ascends into heaven, the church is sitting there in a locked room praying. They're not acting yet. And Jesus knew that the memory and the feelings wouldn't be enough to sustain them. So here's what he did. He sent them a helper. John 14, verses 16 through 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Listen, God has given us as Christians the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower our sanctification, to empower our becoming more and more like Christ. God has given us the spirit to convict us of sin, John 16. The spirit empowers our witness, Acts chapter one, brings to our minds the words of Christ, the scriptures, John 14, and the spirit provides us with gifts to build up the church, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The Holy Spirit is God in us, actively working to make us more and more like Christ. But, but hear this, just like in verse 12, in verse 13, we have a role to play. This isn't a passive process where we just sit back and pray, okay, God, deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. We can't pray, lead us not into temptation, and then do nothing. So this leads us to letter B, pray and set a guard. I'm going to show us in both Old and New Testaments how this process plays out. God working through us while we ultimately maintain some type of responsibility. It's not us working and not God working and not God working and not us working. It's a both and kind of process. So we'll see this first, and I'll go quickly here, in the book of Nehemiah. 
book of Nehemiah, just real quick, high level context. Uh, Nehemiah is a historical book in the Old Testament where the Israelites, God's chosen people, had just left exile in Babylon. They had been exiled in Babylon for about 70 years, and now they're back in Jerusalem trying to rebuild the holy city, the city of David, the city of God. And this was a miracle in and of itself. God had put this plan in the hearts of pagan kings. He delivered his people just like he did in the Exodus, brought them out of slavery, out of exile, back to the promised land, which he promised it to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis chapter 15. So they're back in Jerusalem and they're rebuilding the wall. They're rebuilding the walls of the city and they're meeting opposition in Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter four specifically talks about how people didn't want the walls to be rebuilt. There are people that feared the Israelites and they didn't want to see Israel return to this international prominence. They knew Israel had a powerful God. They didn't want to see Israel succeed. And so this is Nehemiah chapter four, verses six through nine. Nehemiah writing and speaking here. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and Ammonites and Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. Verse eight, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Again, the people here, they didn't want the wall to be rebuilt. And so Nehemiah, the leader of Israel at the time, had a couple of options. One, he could have said, all right, guys, suit up. We're going to go fight Sambalot and all of these bad guys. We're going to go fight them. We're going to take them down and God's going to provide. He could have done that. And he could have just prayed. I mean, God has proven in the Bible that he can miraculously deliver his people. Think about Hezekiah praying for deliverance. And then overnight, God strikes down 185,000 Assyrian troops. So God can do that. But instead of praying and doing nothing or fighting and not praying, Nehemiah chooses the middle option. This is so significant for us. Look at verse nine in chapter four. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Listen, this is a pattern that we see all over the Bible. We pray and we don't sit back, we work. There are both natural means at work here and supernatural means at work here. So natural means is Nehemiah strapping up swords and going to fight and protect his people. The supernatural means are praying and asking God to deliver his people. He rightly understood that unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. If he doesn't pray, God's not gonna provide. But in the same way, we don't pray Christians deliver us and then sit back and do nothing. We see this in the New Testament too, especially in the letters of Paul. Philippians chapter two, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Look at the command that Paul gives the Philippian church here. Work out your salvation. There's a part for us to play here. Work it out. But 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So is it us working our salvation out or is it God working our salvation out? It's both and. Colossians 129, I'll show you just one more. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I'm struggling, I'm toiling, recognizing fully that God is the one who supplies the energy. So this prayer then in Matthew 6, verse 13, lead us not into temptation, the supernatural means that God has given us 
to fight this battle against temptation is the person and work of the Holy Spirit, empowering us to fight sin and conforming us more and more into the image of Christ. But as we've seen, there are natural means that God has given us as well, the ability to work and to toil and to set a guard. So let me say this as clearly as I can. We cannot pray, lead us not into temptation, and then intentionally allow ourselves to be put into situations where we know we'll be tempted. Doesn't make sense. Be like if I said on December 15th, okay, my New Year's resolution this year is to get in shape. Like I want to be healthy and fit. And so I'm going to clean up my diet. I'm going to join a gym. I'm going to go on keto or low carb or whatever the trend is. I'm going to do all that stuff and I'm going to get my my fitness game elevated. That's what I'm going to do. And then January 1 rolls around and I make no attempt to join a gym and I go on the supersize me diet, the McDonald's seven days a week. Like you would know in that moment that my claim to desire physical fitness was empty, that it meant nothing. It matters, not what I say ultimately, but what I do. And it matters what we do here too. You can't pray, lead us not into temptation and then have unlimited access to the internet if pornography is a problem for you. You can't do it. You can't pray, lead us not into temptation when there's a friend of the opposite sex at work that your spouse doesn't know about and you're enjoying the intention. You can't pray, lead us not into temptation when you're prone to drunkenness, but you consistently put yourselves in positions with unlimited access to alcohol. You can't pray, lead me not into temptation, but keep hanging out past midnight with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You can't pray, lead us not into temptation, and then spend hours on social media if it leads you to covet what other people have. And so the question for us is clear. And again, I'm gonna trust the Holy Spirit to apply this morning. Where are you, where are we leaving the door open for temptation, Christian? We wanna pray, deliver us from evil and then make absolutely certain that we aren't leaving room for evil to enter in the back door of our lives. Listen, this matters because God has saved us not just to be a forgiven people, but a holy people. It's God's design for his church. First Peter 1.18, be holy for I am holy. God has not just saved us from something, but for something to live and walk joyfully in holiness because it's God's good design for us. Man, I've heard the phrase so many times that God doesn't care about your happiness. He cares about your holiness. I can't stand that because the two things are not diametrically opposed We are happiest when we're living mostly according to God's word. We're happiest when we're holiest. And so what I want us to see this morning is that there is no aspect of our lives that the gospel doesn't touch. It justifies and it sanctifies. It is comprehensive and all-encompassing. And in the two closing verses of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is showing us this process played out, that we depend on God for pardon and that we depend on God for protection. The gospel has saved us from the penalty of sin. Right now, as believers, it's saving us from the power of sin. And then church, praise the Lord, one day it will save us from the presence of sin where we're going to go and be with them and be freed from temptation once and for all. But I want us to see that the gospel, the good news of Jesus is not a prayer that you pray when you're eight years old. 
And then you go on just living your life, banking on that justification and feelings of thankfulness that are sometimes there and sometimes not. It's not a, not a feeling. It's not raising your hand at the end of a sermon. It is Christ earned and Christ purchased justification and Holy Spirit empowered sanctification. So I'm going to invite the band back up. We're going to close in worship here in a second. Um, but before we do that, I want to offer us a couple of action steps this morning. Uh, we're going to have members of the prayer team up on either side below the screens. And I want to give you some practical steps. Number one, a possible response for you. If you're here and you've not yet trusted in Jesus, then your response this morning needs to be to trust in Christ for forgiveness and justification. Like all this stuff about forgiving and cutting off temptation, like, listen, that's for believers, written to believers. And that will apply to you, but right now, the deepest need that you have is to be reconciled into a relationship with God, to be forgiven of your sin. And I'm gonna pray here in a second and give you a chance to do that, to handle that with the Lord, and then to go up and talk to a brother or sister on my right or left and to work out that process, to, to be prayed over, to talk through, have any questions you have answered. We'll have that space this morning. So that's you, man. Don't leave here without experiencing that miracle of justification to be saved for eternal life. But if you are in here and you're a follower of Christ, which I know is most of us, then my encouragement to you is not just to trust in Christ for justification, but trust in Christ for sanctification too. And then pray and set a guard. Like again, where are the areas of your life where forgiveness needs to be displayed? Where are the areas of your life where temptation has room to grow? You know them. I know them. Are we setting a guard this morning? And so I want to invite us to stand. Let's stand together, church family. And I'm going to pray along those lines. I'm going to pray and give us a chance to trust in Jesus for justification. And I'll pray specifically that he would do a work in us this morning and help us with sanctification, that he would make us a holy people. We would be a holy people. So that first category is you this morning. You're not yet a believer and hear about the goodness of Christ and the love he has for you and you want to experience that miracle of justification. I'm going to pray for you right now and I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Um, there are no magic words to this prayer. A prayer does not save you. This is simply a, a heart posture before the Lord. A decision saves you. God's mercy saves you. And if you're sitting here this morning, man, and you're thinking, I don't know if this is for me. I think it might be. Then, then know this. It's very possible that the Lord is calling you to himself right now. You can experience justification, forgiveness, freedom right now. So pray with me. Father, we come before you acknowledging that we are sinners, that we have not lived up to your standard, that we have rebelled in your sight. And God, we need forgiveness. So we thank you for Jesus, for sending Jesus. We believe that he is fully God and fully man. We trust that he lived a perfect life, that he died a substitutionary death. And we believe that he rose again in physical form. And so God, we repent of our sin. We turn back from our sin, our old life, because we need something new. And we trust in Jesus. We trust in what he did for us. We believe in what he did for us. Adopt us into your family. Turn us from rebels to sons and daughters. God, I pray for this church family. I pray, oh God, that you would have mercy on us this morning.
that you would help us to pray and set a guard. God, I pray that as a result of our time in the word today, that relationships would be restored, that forgiveness that needs to be extended would be offered, that it would be received joyfully, that you would repair familial bonds, that you would restore friendships, that we would do the work that we know you're calling us, commanding us to do this morning. So I pray for courage and conviction to walk in that. I pray for the brother or sister here that's really struggling with temptation, that's struggling with sin. God, I pray this morning that they would pray, trust the Holy Spirit to empower their sanctification and then set a guard, God, whether it's physical means of, of cutting off access to certain situations or taking a different way home. God, I don't know, but you do. And I pray that this morning we would create action plans in our hearts, that we would be people that don't just say, deliver us from evil, God, but that we would position ourselves to be delivered. Make us holy, God. We thank you for your overwhelming love for us. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that covers us, that cleans us, and that empowers us. Thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together.